Good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here at First Christian Church. To those who are here in the West Auditorium, we're very glad you're with us. To those in the East, we're also glad you're with us. And uh, we're going to take a few minutes to look at Scripture. My name is Wayne Kent. For our guests, I'm very glad you're with us particularly. And uh, welcome to First Christian Church today. Take your Bible, if you will, please, and turn to Ezekiel chapter 34. Now, if you don't own a Bible, there's one in the pew rack in front of you here in the West Auditorium in the East. Uh, there are some people moving around with them right now. If you don't own a Bible, there'll be some available at the welcome desk. We'd invite you to go there after the service and get one, or perhaps you're watching on your smartphone. Ezekiel uh, is about two-thirds of the way through the Bible, okay? So while you're looking for Ezekiel chapter 34, some, just a note, I've had some interesting responses to uh, my sermons of recent weeks. If you've been around, you may recall that uh, this series comes out of the fact that it became obvious last summer that I was going to turn 60 this summer. And so I thought, let's take a, what have I learned in 60 years? And um, in the process of turning 60 in June, um, a couple of things that have come along that have cemented the fact that um, middle ages will soon be, if you will, in the rearview mirror. Um, I'm feeling older, maybe way older, depends on what day it is. Uh, for example, here's what happened just a, a few days before my, my birthday. I got a notice in the mail saying I was going to have to have a new driver's license before turning 60. And so you know the drill. You go down to the Department of Vehicles office and you get in line. You get a number. They, they call your number. You, they verify your address, your birth date, your height, your weight, and all that sort of stuff. And you get an eye exam. And then they say, we want to do a new photo. And I, it was, I was passing everything with flying colors. It was all great. And in fact, there was no one in line ahead of me. I got there. They said, take a number. Then they called my number. I mean, it was quite a... I mean, I don't know why they had me take a number, but there you go. I took a number, sat down, and they called me. Immediately, it was, everything was perfect until the young lady helping me re helping review my new photo and what was going to be on my new license is going through a description of what's there. And she says, so this says you have gray eyes. Have your eyes changed color? I'm looking at it, says, I'm putting down gray. This says you have brown hair. I'm putting down gray. Didn't even ask. Didn't even ask what's with that. I think the only thing that's left yet to cement the fact that I am now moved to 60 years old is that <laughs> I'm going to get an invitation from myself from the church sometime in the near future inviting me to a senior saints event. Because the cutoff for that is after somebody turns 60, we start sending them those invitations. So I'm going to get that. It's going to be weird, inviting myself to an old person's group. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's not nice, is it? But nonetheless. So what we're going to do today is we're going to conclude this series that we've been evaluating together based on some things that I might have learned in the years past. And we're calling this, this series Timeless. It's lessons thus far, and we've, we've looked at wisdom, we've looked at, at life, we looked at love, we looked at family last week, and today we're going to take a look at what does it mean for the church, what have I learned so far about the church as a whole, as it relates to staff, and how churches do ministry, and so forth. Um, and to set the stage for that, we'll do what we've been doing in recent weeks. We, we're going to take a look at Scripture, see what Scripture has to say about some things, and then inform that I'm going to give you some observations, some lessons learned thus far. So the passage of Scripture we're going to read today in Ezekiel chapter 34 is an indictment, if you will. It's an accusation from God directed toward the spiritual leaders of Israel. 
And we're going to read a setting that is some 25 to 2,600 years old. It's set sometime after 586 B.C. In 586 B.C., the nation of Israel was overrun by the Babylonians. And the leaders were carted off into slavery. And the nation, the leaders and the nation was in distress as to how they were managing things. And that distress caused them to... I mean, they just stepped into error after error. We're going to read what some of those errors are beginning in verse 34. In chapter 34, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, Ezekiel, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. Shouldn't the shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the, the courage, you clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you don't take care of the flock. You've not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You've not brought the strays, brought, pardon me, you've not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You've ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. And my sheep, they wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. Now, some understanding here would be helpful, I suspect, that when, he, when Ezekiel is writing on behalf of God in referring to the shepherds, he's referring to the leaders of the nation of Israel. The leaders are the shepherds. The flock are the people of the, of the nation. And God is not pleased at all with the leader's approach. Now, these, these shepherds, the priests... The leaders are more interested in their own welfare as compared to the responsibilities they have to care with insight and humility and to care for the people under them. You can see it in verse 3. You eat the curds. You clothe yourselves with wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you don't take care of the flock. You've not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You haven't brought back the strays or you're not searching. You're not doing your job. You haven't searched for the lost. You're ruling. Not only are there some things you haven't done, like you haven't cared for people, but beyond that, what you are doing, you're doing with harshness and brutality. And sadly, this greedy tone is at the top of the nation, and as we read on, we're going to see that it has now infected all the people down below. Read with me, beginning in verse 17 now. Okay, across the page. Ezekiel's still writing... And he's been talking about the sheep. Now, pardon me, talking about the shepherds. Now he's going to talk about the sheep. As for you, my flock, this is what the sovereign Lord says: I'll judge between one sheep and another, between rams and goats. I'm going to, I'm going to have an indictment against you too. And here's why: Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture? Must you also trample the rest with your, of your pasture with your feet? In other words, your, if sheep are out there eating and then they're not leaving grass for others to eat because they're just trampling it down. Is it not enough for you to drink clear water? Must you muddy the rest with your feet? Must my flock feed on what you have trampled and drink what you've muddied with your feet? Not only are the leaders acting with greed apparently, but so are those pe people who are in their charge. The people, like the leaders, are only looking out for their own self-interest, and they're shoving each other's side. They're pushing their flank, if, they will, if you will. Their scriptures talk about that, how they push with their flank, and their greed, the greed in the nation is now layered from top to bottom. Now, in that setting of greediness and people just shoving each other aside, I want you to note this, that God, how God refers to the people at the top the ones who should be setting an example, what does he call them? 
This is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel. So the writer is using a metaphor where the leaders are called shepherds who only take care of yourselves. Shouldn't the shepherds take care of the flock? The leaders are called shepherds. Now, we know from history that they are the priests of the nation. Remember, this is, this is in a different time in a different world than our American Democratic Republic, where we elect leaders based on our preferences and so forth and so on, and somebody who has never been a leader before through politics can become a leader. Now, in, in ancient Israel, it was not a democratic republic. It was a theocracy. They said God was in charge, and the the men, they were all men who ran the nation, were from priestly families or the priestly tribes. So if, when it came to, if you will, running the nation, it was run by the religious rulers. There weren't, if you were a civic leader or a judge, you still came out of that religious party, if you will. And so these religious people are supposed to govern the nation as a way, in the same way that a shepherd would watch over a flock. Now, What's important to note is that in the Old Testament, the, the focus of the Old Testament is on the story of the people of Israel. All right? So that, and, and in the story of the people of Israel, the leaders were called shepherds. That same metaphor carries forward into the New Testament where the focus of the story becomes the church. In the Old Testament, you have the focus of the leaders being shepherds over the nation. In the New Testament, you have the leaders being shepherds, called shepherds again, but this time it's over the church. And there are all sorts of ways in which that's described in the New Testament. I want to point out just two passages to you where the, the Greek word shepherd is used, even though we translate it in English in different ways. Okay, So from Paul the Apostle, he's writing in Ephesians, Christ gave the apostles, and what he does, he, he lists some job descriptions, if you will, job titles in the book of Ephesians of different staff positions in the church. Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, that's where we're going to land in a moment, okay? The pastors and the teachers to do what? We have these people in the church to equip his people for works of service. Why? So that the body of Christ may be built up with this end in sight. We all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. That word pastors there, Greek is the word poimen, and it means shepherd, okay? The same word is used in 1 Peter chapter 5, and it says 1 Peter 2, but that was my error. I gave them the wrong, the wrong um, reference, but it's 1 Peter chapter 5. It says, to the elders, leaders, and among you, be shepherds, that same Greek word, poimen, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but here's how, because you are willing, as God wants you to be. How are you going to do your job? Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. So here's my point. In the New Testament, when talking about the church, those two passages use the same Greek word. One time it's translated as pastors, the other next is shepherds. And what I'm wanting you to understand is the tie between the shepherds of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and the shepherds, the leaders of the church in the New Testament. In both cases, they are called shepherds. We just, by the time you get to the New Testament, in the English translation, the shepherd seems to disappear somewhat, but in the original Greek, it's all there. That word shepherd, that language and that metaphor is tied to anyone who is a leader in the church, pastors, leaders, elders. In other words, people who are in my role, the job description that I have, the job title I have, people who are in my role are to act as shepherds over the flock of God, over the people of God. 
And if you will, those two passages right there, Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 5, they actually give you an understanding of my job description. It's given for all to see. That this is what I'm to do. I'm to bring you to maturity in Christ. That's the Ephesians 4 passage. While watching over you with an attitude of willing service. The second passage there. So my point is to say that the, the indictment against the shepherds of Israel in saying you're not doing this is a way in which we could say this is what the shepherds of the church are to do. When we learn again, when we learn of this indictment against the shepherds of Israel in the Old Testament, what could we say then about the shepherds of the New Testament church? What, in other words, what am I supposed to do? What am, people with my job title, what am I supposed to do? My responsibility, my job description is I'm responsible to help you grow in Christ. If you say, is Wayne doing his job? Are the other staff doing their job? That's the mark. That's the, that's the total sum of my ministry, to watch over you. And if you go, end up in another congregation, you're moving you know, to a different city, and you say, how are we going to find a church? You look for leaders in that church who are going to do what the Apostle Paul once told one of his protégés. Make certain that you fulfill your ministry. Go to, and what's that ministry to be? Is to care for the flock. And that's been my job. That is my job. And so what I'd like to do, in light of that job description, in light of, well, what we've been doing in recent weeks is we've been saying, okay, this is what the Bible says. We said this is what the Bible says about wisdom and then about life and love and family. That's what the Bible says about ministry roles, okay? So in light of what the Bible has to say, what observations could I give you about, full, about being in ministry and doing life together as a church? You know, I've been in full-time ministry since 1978. I was 19 years old when I went to ministry for the first time. And I have worked in full-time ministry ever since except for one year. The way in which I paid my way through college was working full-time in ministry except for one year. And so in 1978, I became a full-time full-time went into full-time ministry as a musician. And um, in 1985, then in July of 1985, is when I went into pastoral ministry. And my goal here in bringing all this to you is, if you will, to see inside the role that I should have, not to be self-grandizing, but to say, what does the Bible say about ministry? And the point being so that you can both follow the shepherds of our church and also know how to care for the staff members and the shepherds of our church. And so to give you a beginning understanding of that, I think it'd be helpful if you knew in my headspace what I understand pastors do. I'll tell you a story in that regard. I think I was in the eighth grade when, uh, either seventh or eighth grade, probably eighth grade, I went off to summer camp. You know, kids go to summer camp. It's going to be a week-long Christian camp. And at the end of the camp, on the Friday night when mom and dad come to pick you up, the camp leaders said, we'd like Wayne to come back next week. Can you take him home, clean all his clothes, and we'd like him to come back to camp for the next two or three weeks? Mom and dad why? Well, we need a little help in the kitchen. <laughs> and he looks like he might be a willing soul. So, so I'm 13, I mean, 13 year old working in the summer kitchen for all summer, working the summer in the kitchen for the summer seemed like a brilliant idea. I was up for that. Now, I didn't know what I was going to do. I might have given second thought to it because once I got back there on Monday, my job was scrubbing the pots and pans after every meal. And you're talking about big meals and things that get, I mean, 
you can just, it was, a, it was a hard job, and it was hard, very hard steel wool, and my hands were raw within a couple days. And, and it, it was very life-forming, really was, particularly given what would happen at night at summer camp for those that ended up being four weeks or so. Every night, there would be a worship service, and sometimes it was adult camp, other times it was family camp, little kids camp. I mean, I, I heard it all, and every night, that constant being there, I got to the place where every night I'd say, God, I want to know you. That was this 13-year-old kid. I became the focus of my prayers in those worship settings. And that really was who I was as a kid through my teenage years. God, I want to know you. But at the end of my teenage years, the prayer changed. Maybe it was being growing up and becoming mature and working through adolescence and all that sort of stuff. It became, God, I want to be used by you. Now, I'll tell you, friends, I had no thought to vocational ministry. I wanted to be a musician. And in the church that I grew up in, it was only the smartest and the brightest and the best people were called into pastoral ministry or missionary work. I mean, if you were going to be called into that, you had to be the cream of the crop. <laughs> and I never ascribed myself to any of those settings. And so I never expected, never expected to be in pastoral work. Uh, but in July of 1985, this little church asked, and Les and I said, okay, let's take a run at it. I, we thought for six months, and we'd go back to being musicians, and I don't know if the joke's on them or me, so many years <laughs> later. <laughs> but along the way, now more than 30 years in pastoral ministry, more than 40 years in full-time ministry, I've learned a few things. And so I want to give you, because of Ezekiel 34 and the New Testament's understanding of a shepherd and leader in ministry, I want to give you some observations, if you will, some timeless lessons that I've learned thus far regarding ministry. And first is this one. The pastoral ministry is far more difficult than I ever imagined. That's not a complaint. All right, It's not a complaint, but that's an observation. I frankly pray that more of our young people, our brightest and best, would consider vocational ministry as a career. I mean, if you're a junior hire here today or somebody who's in high school, would you consider prayerfully saying, God, would you want me to be involved in ministry on a full-time basis for the rest of my life? We, the way the world is, the church needs our best and brightest people working in ministry. And I'd like to ask you young people to consider that. You know, as you go off to school, off to college, and as you're doing all your studies, could I have an influence on a local congregation and then have that local congregation influence the world for Jesus Christ? Give some thought to that, all right? Here's what I've also, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you even, if I say, even as I say that, kids, don't be fooled. It's hard work. And you know why it's hard work? Because sometimes the sheep aren't all that great. Here's what I've learned, that over the years, that it seems like the responsibility and the weight of what I carry seems to have grown over the years. Why is that? Well, the sheer numbers of people. When I first came to First Christian Church, when Leslie arrived here in January of 1994, I was the, I was the only full-time staff member. And now we literally have dozens. And the sheer numbers of people in attendance and their needs and the, doing life together, you grow into people's lives the numbers of people that needed resources, the mission possibilities. 
it all becomes heavier and heavier in some ways. It's good, but I, can I explain how, how that particularly plays out in the role I have? See, I'm aware that as a congregation, we want to see people come to know Jesus Christ. And that's the goal, for to become devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That is the goal. But the way in which we do that with ministries and people and everything usually means money. And so I feel a particularly heavy responsibility regarding finances and how we spend money. And I realize I'm the key leader when it comes to raising funds, and I want to manage that with integrity. How we spend our money as a congregation makes an eternal difference in the lives of people, both in the congregation and outside the congregation. If we spend money wisely, you know what happens? Christians grow in their faith. The congregation's ministries expand. We reach into the lives of people outside the faith, and they turn their lives to Jesus Christ, and they get heaven, headed toward heaven. That's if we do it right. If we spend money poorly or foolishly, those moments and those people are lost. And so when you talk about the church's mission and everything, I'm quite aware that how we manage our resources is key to that. And I feel responsibility toward that. And consequently, building, building pastoral trust takes some time. I'm aware that it can be lost in a heartbeat, but building trust takes a long time. It takes years to accumulate. I will say this. I probably wasn't the pastor of First Christian Church until about seven or eight years in. You go, well, why is that? Didn't they hire you to be the pastor? Well, yeah, they hire you to be the pastor, but think about the life of this church. At that point, this congregation was already 160 years old. All right? And um, I came in. I was the 44th pastor this church had hired. Now, think about that. 44 pastors in 160 years. That means most of them don't last but about three years, right? On average. So um, there, the congregation had this kind of culture that said, he may stay for a while, but then he'll be gone. And so I really didn't become the pastor until I proved that I would stay around. They go, oh God, the guy's staying here after all. You know, seven or eight years in, if he's staying here this long, I guess we're going to have to figure this out. And so my sense was that Initially, I was, a pa I was another pastor in a very long list. And that shifted around seven or eight years in. And then at the 15-year level, the trust and the leadership responsibilities and possibilities shifted again. And so if you're looking, if you know, end up in a new city and you're looking for a congregation where things are going to move forward, say, how long, is the, how long has the staff been around? Has, the, has there been some sort of relationship that's developed where there developed trust and where there's a sense of integrity through that? It takes a long time to do that. You know, I must be honest and tell you that Les and I have been here now more than 20 years. It's 25 years in January. And um, along the way, people have asked, so have you thought about moving on? And you always go, why are you asking me that? Uh, and so I've come up with some responses of why... Um, to that question, have you thought about moving on? And I thought, can I give you a couple of them, just a few? Get ready, get ready. Have you thought about moving on? Well, why would a fellow want to leave when he only work one day a week? <laughs> All right. Or if you've been around the church for the last few years, you knew that at, at 20 years, the church really honored us. And so, why would you want to leave when at 20 years, you get a free sailboat? 
Some of you may remember that. The church graciously, unexpectedly gave us this lovely, it's, it's a 1987, uh, um, 22-foot-long sailboat down on the boat, on the lake. It's really stuff. Oh, take a look at this. Take a look at this video as to another reason to think about moving, perhaps. That's my office. You want another reason to stay? I don't want to pack up all those books. <laughs> One final reason why you could say that Les and I are still here, and that is that this church has a radio show. And I have a face made for radio, not television. You know, Leslie and I were at a wedding this past weekend, and um, there were some other folk from the church in attendance, and, you know, you're sitting at the table, and there was discussion about, so uh, what are you doing, what are you preaching on this weekend, and what can we look forward to? I said, well, there's going to be a photo of me, and uh, I showed him the photo, and this is the honest truth. The lady across the table says, um, is there some sort of filter on that to make it look like that? <laughs> and I had to honestly say, no, there's no filter on that at all. That's just how the, how the photo looked. That's me, all right? And it's a privilege to serve with you, friends. Um, a few more observations about ministry and life in the church in light of caring and leading and doing life together, and that is that people's pain can be overwhelming at times for those of us in ministry teams. And in seminary, they say that, you know, we're taught you should have some sort of professional distance between you and the congregation. That's never worked well for us. I don't know where the line is between professional distance and doing life with people. It maybe was there for the first few years. You can do that. But after this many years together, by no means. In the long run, you have to have these, I've learned, I have to have coping uh, abilities to both embrace people's pain while also having some viewpoint of, say, a 30,000 foot viewpoint, okay? Because embracing while leading, embracing the pain while leading is a learned art, and it's a hard art to learn, because sometimes people's pain, and you want to care for their pain, sometimes their pain is at odds with the direction the church is going. And how do you make a decision and, and have impact upon somebody's life in the midst of their pain or the decisions that are made in the church, and also at the same time move the church forward if that decision is going to bring more pain? That's a hard place to be. But in the midst of all of that, I've discovered that Simply this, you can't please everybody. As a matter of fact, there are some people you can't please at all. Seriously. They think they have the unique spiritual gift of complaining. Sometimes you hear that. Some people simply look for trouble. It's how they're wired. It's how their families were raised. And they particularly do not trust leadership. Maybe they were at a church or some civic organization or in government where the leaders just, you know, burned them over and over again. And it may take heaven, it may not be till heaven, till some can move to seeing the glass has half full when it comes to leadership and developing a life approach. And if that's you, if that's where you are, I've, I probably can't please you. And it, I need you to know this. I'm okay with that. My job is not to please people to please you or others. My job is to lead and care. And so sometimes, even though in leading and caring, some people still don't trust. Fair enough. Being in leadership sometimes brings complaints. You know, it's often suggested that pastors particularly, you need to develop thick skin. That's one of the things they say in seminary. And I want to go, you want, you want, do you really want a pastor with thick, thick skin? Where everything just rolls off their back? 
I have never developed that, and I have no plans to develop that, in all honesty. I strive to find the balance between compassionate care for each individual while not allowing the drama of some lives to bring me down. But I'm not going to be one of those guys that has a thick skin and says, that's none of my business. I can't see that in, in Ezekiel. I don't see it there. I see that you didn't go looking for the lost. You didn't care for the ones who were out in the mountains. You didn't feed, and this is an indictment from God towards those leaders. I don't want to have thick skin. In that regard, staff is the key. How we as a staff manage all the concerns and the issues of people's lives is really important. When staff do well, the church does well. When staff act poorly, the church suffers. You hire the right people and a church will accomplish much. Hire the wrong people and a congregation will soon move away from success. And as I said, I was the only full-time person here in 1994. It's changed now. Dozens of us are on full-time work here at the church full-time. And I'm proud of that. I'm pleased with that. I'm aware that you've got that many people working for the church if, and in the church. There's going to be changes in their lives, and we're going to see staff turnover probably every year. We'll lose one or two important key people, and we'll have to replace them. I get that. But we move into that hiring process with great prayer and very slowly because we want a staff culture that we have right now to be maintained. And the wrong person can make a big difference in that regard. So... We work very clearly to say, how do we maintain a great staff culture? Because if we do that, the church does well. And when it comes to culture, I would have to tell you very clearly, the culture outside the church, the culture's agenda is increasingly at odds with the church and with Scripture. Here's what I mean. The, the culture's norm cannot be the Christian norm or the church's norm. We are called to a different attitude, a different life approach. And in my observation, and it's grown in the last 40 years, that there is increasing disparity between what the church believes and what the culture believes. Our life, Scripture's injunctions, put it this way, Scripture's injunctions and life approaches are not appreciated by the larger culture, and in fact, these days are ridiculed by the culture. For example, think of the culture's constant anger I mean, left versus right, over and over every day. I get so tired of it. And I, we cannot take that anger approach. You know why? Because Scripture says, don't be angry. Scripture says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The culture doesn't let any gentleness win. We are different than the culture. We say, we will be gentle people. Here's another places where the culture and, the, and the, the scriptures are completely at opposite ends. You talk about human sexuality these days, and it is vastly different than what the Bible has to say about human sexuality and where the culture is, whether it be in the LGBT community or in the heterosexual community. What the, the practices of our culture versus what the Bible has to say are increasingly further and further apart. Let's, let's acknowledge that, and churches that don't acknowledge that and plan to figure out ways to address it are putting their, they're burying their heads in the sand. And friends, let me tell you this. As your pastor, if this is an issue for you, can I say we would love to be involved in your life? We'd love to see what God could do in your relationships to bring it all back into a biblical rightness, okay? The same has to be said about abortion. There is, the, the abortion industry is to be found nowhere in Scripture. The people of ancient Israel, as a matter of fact, they knew this that any kind of child, child abuse or child sacrifice in any way was abhorrent to God. In Exodus chapter 20, we're told that if you treat children incorrectly, God says to the people of Israel, I will take my hand of blessing and my face that is turned toward you, and it will come off you, and I will literally turn my back against you. And yet, since 1973, 
we've seen 60 million babies murdered, right? In our land. And yet at the end of a lot of television broadcasts or politicians speaking or this, that, that they say, well, they say, God bless America. And I want to know, how dare, how dare we ask God for blessings in that regard? Does it not seem way weird to you that we say, God bless America, when we're living like that? Again, culture versus scripture are where it's further apart. And I, friend, I'm aware that in our congregation of this size, there are many, many men and women who've been impacted by the tragedy of abortion. If that's you, help, let us help you. If it's there and you go, man, I, how am I ever going to get past that? Or why did I make that decision? Or why was that decision forced upon me? Let us have some impact upon that and say, let's come along as those, alongside you as the body of Christ because we're going to be different than the rest of the world. We're going to be different when it comes to the culture's fascination with ego and pride and self-promotion. That's absolutely different than the scriptures call to be people of humility and personal sacrifice. You know, or here's one more, and then I'll stop on all this, and that is our nation's pluralism. It's what we were founded on, that everybody gets to have a say in what goes on. I get it. But it seems to me of late that that only flows one way. And again, we're seeing what the Bible has to say and where the culture is to be two different things in this regard. These days, you can say, this is truth, that's truth, that's truth, that's truth, unless it's a Christian truth. It seems to me that that's a growing voice within the culture. And these days, Christians are painted as idiots who believe in some ancient practice that has little relevance to the 21st century thinking. The pluralism of today usually does not include Christianity. And I suspect there are going to be days ahead when that difference is going to become greater. It's going to bring greater difficulty to church life and ministry. And I want to say, friends, that is not a gloomy prophecy. That is a moment for a great ministry to take place. Because I'm mindful that our American experiment of freedom of thought, religion, and democracy is very unique in history. For most of human history, people have not got to live under the setting that we live in. For most of the church's history, for most of the church's history, those who abided by scripture have lived in ridicule and persecution from the outside looking in. And I'm not particularly worried about that. I'm not too worried about whether or not people agree with us per se or whether or not they make fun of us because here's what I saw. Before pastoral ministry between 1978 and 1985, the focus of Leslie and I's ministry was in Eastern Europe. And I saw and continue to see the church under persecution. We saw it in the former Soviet Union. We saw it in the former communist Romania. We saw it in the former communist Poland. And we've just had a team return 10 days ago from communist Cuba. And let me tell you, friends, persecution can bring out the best in Christians. So I'm not praying God bring it on. But if it comes, I'm not too worried. The church will survive and the church will do even better. Why? Because we'll be taking the message in the light of Jesus Christ into places that are increasingly dark. I've gone, now I've started preaching, haven't I? But nonetheless, all right. <laughs> Three more. Ministry sometimes means you make it up as you go. Uh, I've pastored since 1985. Each day brings new learnings, new challenges, new ministry needs. And I'll tell you straight up, some days I'm making it up that day. Now, now and then, I may know what to do. I may know what to do. But mostly, mostly I'm relying on the work of the Holy Spirit every day. 
God, how would you have me respond to this? And I want to say thank you for trusting me and your staff team to trust the Holy Spirit. Two more observations, including a personal one for me. That my ministry success, of any that I might see, is fully engaged with Leslie. She's key to me in regards to my ministry and any success I might achieve. Think of it this way. I'll say it this way. I'm thankful that we are a congregation that provides freedom for the spouses of our staff members, both men and women, to find the places of ministry. There was never an expectation on Leslie's part that she was going to be in the kitchen running VBS. I mean, that was how, you know, and, and we were taught as, as kids that, you know, as, as young preachers or, you know, young clergy couple, that, well, you know, Leslie, you have to do this, this, and this as the pastor's wife. And you got to be there for this, that, and the other. And, you know, friends, what did Leslie do? She spent 10 years on the road with Chuck Colson in prison fellowship. She was gone every year about 100 nights between Easter and Thanksgiving visiting every prison across the country. There are many churches that would not have allowed that, if you will. But we learned that that was an extension of our church's ministry, and we learned how to do, and we learned how to do it together as a congregation, and consequently, for the, for the spouses of our staff members today, they come into the life of our church, and they go, where can God use me, not just where the congregation expect me to work? That's great freedom, and I say thank you for that. I, and in my case... Uh, Leslie's provided me with the support only many, the support that many husbands only dream about. And that's about us personally, but then something about you personally. I count it a privilege to be in this adventuresome partnership with you. I literally every day sit at my desk and go, how am I the one who gets to do this? And who I get to do it with. And I will tell you, friends, there's not a weekend that goes by that I walk up to this pulpit and I look out over this congregation in this room, and I will have already seen the people in the East Auditorium. And incidentally, the services are within a few weeks are going to be broadcast in the Lovington Christian Church as well. And I look over all of that, and I go, man, God, how did this happen? I'm the kid who cleans the pots and the pans at summer camp and will never make it to be the pastor. Never, ever thought of that. And yet now look at what God has done. I, it's weird to me. It's crazy. And as I look in the rearview rear mirror of my ministry, that may be a case that there's more in the back than in forward, but the adventure is far from over. Because let me tell you, if you only knew the list of things that I could still dream up and I still have written down, say, what if we were to do this? We got a lot to take on, friends. It would scare the living bejeebies out of you if you knew what we were <laughs> going to do yet. Seriously, the things that God can do in and through this congregation... We're still, we, we've barely got to the top of the roller coaster yet. We haven't, I don't even know if we've had the big, big moment yet. It may be coming, here, here's what I know, friends. My role, the staff's role, this congregation, our profile in the community and around the world. We are doing things that other congregations only dream of. For example, we have a team returning today um, from a country we can't tell you where they were. So we had 120, 100, whatever, 100, 100, what, how many? 113 people in Cincinnati last week. We had more than 20 people in Cuba the week before that. And for the last 10 days, we've had people in a country in Asia where it is against the law to tell the story of Jesus Christ. You can go to prison. And they're there, they're returning today, and we didn't dare tell you for fear that you'd put on social media. 
which we would normally, hey, we've got a team going to this country. We couldn't tell you. They get back today. Really cool stuff of what God is doing in us and through us. And I'm, I'm mindful of this. The shepherds of the people of Israel and the shepherds of the church are called to care and to lead and to do it with integrity and to serve with humility. And um, Moses once told the shepherds of Israel, you're to do this, and I want to do it for you today as, if you will, one of the shepherds of our congregation. Moses said, stand in front of the people. And so to those of you in, here in the West and to those of you in the East, I'm doing what he said. You shepherds, say this over the people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. In other words, friends, God bless you. God bless you for being the people of First Christian Church and the people who I get to do life with and for. God bless you. Let's pray. For my friends, God, some who I've, whom I've known for years and years and years, and Lord, maybe some I just met today, I thank you that you allow us to do life together and in uh, the great joys of life and the great challenges and the moments of tremendous ministry and the moments when oh, we have questions. Uh, in all of that, God, I thank you that through it, we get to see Jesus Christ working us and through us. May that continue to be our experience, God. Not that we would be known, but more so that the name of Jesus Christ would be known in this community and this world. And we pray this in his name.